33-year-old Frank Durabont could barely pay the rent. He was hammering together movie sets in Hollywood because he couldn't quite yet make it as a screenwriter or as a movie director following his dream. And according to a 2014 article in Vanity Fair, Durabont was quite a fan of Sting Stephen King's writings, and so he adapted one of King's short stories and made it into a screenplay and then a big-time movie studio purchased the screenplay, and they were going to make it into a movie for the big screen. And they said to him, we are going to have Rob Reiner direct the film. He's so successful, so many film credits. It's going to be wonderful. And Durbont said, no, I will direct the film. And they said, oh, no, 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 no. We're going to pay you like between two and a half and three million to let Rob Reiner direct the film. And he said, absolutely not. I'll direct it myself. Now, why would someone who could barely pay the rent turn down that kind of money and his lucky break for this purpose? They even said, okay, here's what we're gonna do. The next screenplay you write, you can direct that one. And he said, no. I'm directing this one. Was he that stubborn and determined because he had been born in a refugee camp after his family fled the revolution in Hungary and he was there born in that refugee camp in France? Or was it because his family finally landed in LA but always struggled to make ends meet? What Durabont said to explain his stubborn position was this, he said, you can continue to defer your dreams in exchange for money, and you know, you can die without ever having done the thing that you set out to do. Now, Durbont's film cost $25 million to make, and in the box office, it earned $18 million. It was a financial flop. But once it was released into the cable and home video market, his film soared in popularity, and it became one of the greatest movies ever made, earning Durbont and so many others affiliated with the film tens of millions of dollars. The film is Shawshank Redemption. This beloved story about redemption was not only a movie about redemption, it was an event that redeemed Frank Durbont. Why is it, do you suppose, that once the movie finally caught hold, people all around the globe loved it? What is it about the story in Shawshank Redemption that captured people's imagination? One writer said that it is one of the few movies about the friendship between, between two men that doesn't involve a car race. But really, who, who's interested in watching a movie about what takes place in the dreary bleakness of a prison? Tim Robbins plays Andy, and Morgan Freeman plays Red. What was it that millions of people found redemptive about this movie? Was it how Andy reached out to the prison guards and helped them with their taxes and their investments because he knew about finance from his world prior to prison? Or was it how Andy lobbied both internally and externally for the prison library to be upgraded? Or was it his steadfast ethics in a system where both the guards and the prisoners frequently gave in to corruption? 
Or was it the hope and the love shared by these two prisoners, one who was wrongly accused but, but serving consecutive life sentences with no hope for parole, and the other one guilty but awaiting for parole? Two men dreaming of a different kind of life. There are particular moments in the film that were so powerful that even while they were filming it, the film crew was in tears. One day, Andy tells Red, I guess it comes down really to a simple choice. You can either get busy living or get busy dying. Morgan Freeman said that after the film was made, he would be traveling and people would just come up to him unsolicited and tell him, that movie changed my life. And Tim Robbins remembers the time that he met Nelson Mandela, the world's most famous prisoner, who said, I love the movie Shawshank Redemption. And Robbins said that no matter what kind of prison you're in, whether it's a job that you really hate or a relationship that you're simply slogging through, that the film holds out the possibility that there is still freedom inside of you. I think of a relative of mine who was imprisoned for 25 years by the desire that she held, the singular desire that gripped her to become financially affluent. She gave up everything for that singular goal. She suffered for years through an abusive marriage because she couldn't imagine how she would reach that goal without his salary. She gave up her own spiritual life because he never really wanted to go to church. She sacrificed her relationships with family and even her own career to try to please him. And in the end, when their marriage was destroyed, she was still financially in ruins. And that was simply the beginning of her finding her own authentic life, a glimpse of the freedom inside her own soul. I think also of my colleague, Serene Jones, the president of Union Seminary, who writes in her recent book about her deep desire for revenge after Timothy McVeigh blew up the federal building in Oklahoma City. Her sister and brother-in-law both worked downtown in and around the federal building, and for hours and hours and hours after the bombing, she and her sisters and her parents waited for word to see if their kin were alive and safe. And though they both lived, Serene could not shake the rage and the anger that she felt for Timothy McVeigh. She was imprisoned by her inability to forgive him. And she describes in her book how she would go to class and teach seminary students about God's grace and come home and watch the news, feeling absolutely haunted by her hate for him. The inability to forgive can imprison us. And I think also of my friend Jim, such a dynamic speaker, such a charismatic personality, a great preacher. And the more he learned about grace, the more criticized he was by the denominational leaders who believed that God demanded only one way to heaven. When Jim tried to preach love and grace, they tried to silence him. They even tried to get him fired. When he suggested that it was okay for women to teach Sunday school in the church, they told him to stop preaching. Jim was enslaved to a message that he no longer believed. The church was smothering him. He was dying on the inside. And so Jim left the church 
to become a corporate lawyer. Today's scripture from Colossians was written from a prison to a group of people who are imprisoned by a way of life that is not God's. The author of Colossians knows what Shawshank Redemption says is true, that we can either get busy living or get busy dying. You see, the Christians in Colossae, they were citizens of the dominant Roman Empire, and the empire held rules, written rules and unwritten rules. The emperor was like a god, and you should bow down to him. But Christians, they worshiped a different lord, one named Jesus. The empire declared that money was king and violence would be used to squash anyone who challenged the status quo. But Christians believed God was king, and the way to solve a disagreement was through love. The people of Colossae were part of the Roman Empire, but they were also part of the household of God, the realm of God, and they were struggling to figure out which of these powers would win in their lives. The letter to the Colossians says that to be a Christian is to live a life worthy of God, to play by a different set of rules. As Christians, they have been transferred from the glittering empire of the nation to the realm of Jesus in whom they have redemption. But what is redemption? Now, if you're my age or older, you might recall that a long time ago when you went to the grocery store, you would get your receipt and some green stamps. And you would take those green stamps home and you would paste them into a book and you would take them to the redemption center and you would get something really exciting like a toaster, something really great. But if you're younger than me, then you might think of redeeming the iTunes card that your grandmother gave you in your Christmas stocking so that you can have more songs on your phone. Or maybe you're like me and you keep forgetting to redeem your frequent flyer points. To redeem is to buy back. Now, in the ancient world, folks counted on their next of kin to redeem them. And so if a famine struck the land and your olive trees and your fig trees all shriveled up and died, you would simply lose the farm and you would sell yourself into slavery, working off that debt as an indentured servant. Unless, of course, your brother came along and had mercy upon you and paid your debt to purchase your freedom, you could be redeemed. And so the Bible borrows this image to say that God has come to you and claimed you as God's very own person. You are forgiven for whatever mess you have made of your life. You don't have to make it up. You don't have to make up for the wrong that you have done. The God who created you and breathed life into you now redeems you so that you can live an entirely new life. The philosopher Nietzsche once said, I might believe in the Redeemer if his followers looked more redeemed. 
the passage from Colossians challenges us to assess whether or not our lives look any different because we call ourselves Christian. Can you look at my bank account and tell that I am a Christian? Or does my spending look like every other American's? Can you look at my calendar and tell that I am a Christian? Or do I waste my time on all the same stuff as do my neighbors? Can you look at my family and see that we process conflict with dignity and respect and honesty? Can you look at our church and tell that we are good stewards of the gifts of God, including God's good green earth? Or do we here at the church waste as much paper and plastic and other resources as does any other organization? Do we look redeemed? Can you look at our city, including the poorest of the poor, and say, wow, in Kansas City, there must be a lot of Christians in that town because just look at how they treat those who are the most vulnerable among them, the homeless, the widows, the orphans. Colossians was, in, was written to the early church and to us to encourage us, not to discourage us. The author and poet Wendell Berry said, I believe that the world was created and approved by love, that it subsists, coheres, and endures by love, and that insofar as it is redeemable, it can only be redeemed by love. God claims us with love and sets us free. That is what redemption means. God claims us with love and sets us free to love one another. But is it true? Are we redeemed? Can we really find the freedom deep within us to live lives as redeemed ones? After all, our world is filled with sorrow and distractions. It is easy for all of us to fall into being discouraged. William Barber is a colleague of mine in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ. He pastors a church in North Carolina. In a recent sermon, Barber recalled a difficult moment in the life of our nation. He remembers the famous African-American abolitionist and friend of President Lincoln, Mr. Frederick Douglass. Some of us here in the congregation once toured the Frederick Douglass House in Washington, D.C., a beautiful mansion. It was on our faith journey tour. And I remember standing in the foyer of Frederick Douglass's beautiful home and thinking about him walking down to the White House and the friendship that he shared with Lincoln. But in 1852, Frederick Douglass grew increasingly discouraged. It seemed like the tide in the nation was shifting and swinging towards keeping slavery as an economic institution and the abolitionist voice in the land was losing momentum. Frederick Douglass gave a formal address to a large crowd and sitting in the audience that day during the speech was the woman named Sojourner Truth. As she listened to Frederick Douglass give his speech, she could hear in his voice tones 
of despair and defeat. He was losing hope. His words were right on point, but there was no energy. There was no power in his soul. And so Sojourner Truth stood up in the middle of the room, in the middle of the speech, and she interrupted and she said, Frederick, is God dead? And Frederick Douglass was shaken to his core by her question. He kept hearing her question over and over and over again over the next five years. And the Supreme Court ruled against the cause of freedom in the Dred Scott case. And bad news kept coming. But he kept hearing her question. And Douglas decided that God was still alive, that it was still possible for God to redeem. And so Frederick Douglass gave another formal speech. And at this moment, he left no question in anyone's mind about the possibility of humanity to be redeemed by the living God. In this speech, he said, the Supreme Court is not the only power of the world. It is very great, but the Supreme Court of the Almighty God is greater. Country Club Christian Church, is God dead? Shall you and I get busy living or get busy dying? <laughs>